So I went into the fridge and we have, a, it's like a perfect kind of what we were talking about. So this is um, Jeff Beer. Uh, he has a lot of different labels. So I, are you familiar with this one? Do you know? I mean, so maybe he, some of them. Okay, cool. So yeah, so he, Golden Cluster and uh, Venice Obscura. He has all these names that okay. it's kind of, you know, winemakers, they get to, they like to like do their little brand Some of stuff. them for sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is a co-ferment. It's a white wine co-ferment. Um, and it's from Forest Grove, which is awesome. So uh, it's a field blend of, he doesn't say, but it's, oh, he doesn't even say, I thought he was like 14 different, um, he doesn't say, but it's a field blend, obviously, uh, by the name. Um, and uh it's from, so he's, he finds these like old vineyards. Um, and uh, this is, I'm just gonna read it cause it's not gonna, paraphrasing isn't gonna work. Sure. So known as Wine Hill Pre-Prohibition, this hill above Forest Grove was the center of wine culture in the Willamette Valley. It was settled by many German and Swiss immigrants who came to this area and brought their wine culture with them. Um, at its peak, Wine Hill was home to six vineyards and three wineries. Um, and so, yeah, and he's saying that's pre-prohibition. So that oh. is, yeah, hundred year old vines or more. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. Well, that's Stacy Gibson who's joining me for this salon. She's uh, from Park Avenue Fine Wine down in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Uh, and Stacy, I wanted to ask you, um, in addition to what you're drinking, which is a, a great place to start, um, how did you get interest, interested in wine in the first place? Um, I, I like most people. I kind of came about it in a a weird kind of wandering way. I studied political science in college. And so I moved to DC after graduation and I was working at some nonprofits and I actually started getting my master's in public policy and I was miserable. Mm. And so I um, got my heart broken. And then I, my best friend was working as a hostess in actually as a maitre d' in a restaurant in Flatiron in New York. And so she was like, come live with me, live on my couch and you can be a hostess at my restaurant the first day you move here. And I got you. So like, yeah, place to stay job instantly. I was like, okay, this is where we're going. So I started working at this restaurant. Actually, it happens to be the restaurant where I met my husband as well. So it was almost 13 and a half years ago. And, uh, I just, I loved restaurants. I just, it was such a, especially coming from. DC and coming from politics and mm-hmm. it was just like so energizing and then what really drew me into it uh was wine and I just that was what I really gravitated towards I was always excited about what was on the wine list the glass pour list just learning more getting in, into the whole industry uh and as I slowly it took me a few years because I knew I loved it right away but I didn't think that it was where I was going to go mm-hmm. And so uh eventually I really latched onto it I kept taking wine classes um, which even, you know, now it's funny. I took one wine class, um, at a culinary school in New York. And okay. I remember afterwards being like, I don't like this. This is so intense. Like <laughs> I, this is so hard, you know? And then, uh, so I kind of like stepped away from wine for like probably six months. And then I was like totally drawn back into it. And I ended up taking the WSET advanced. Okay. And so I was like, actually, I really like this a lot. This is really fun. And so I took the WSET. Uh, and from there, I had started working at one of the Mama Fukus, the one on um, 56th Street. Okay. And I was just absolutely obsessed, clawed my way to get a wine position. I was just 
telling my bosses all the time, like, I want to work, I want to work with wine. I want to work with wine. I'll do anything in the cellar. I'll do anything in the cellar. And so that's how I really, uh, eventually I became the wine director there, um, which was just my dream job, but I actually only stayed there for, after being the wine director, I was only there for about six months. Oh, wow. Um, because I realized that I didn't know that much, mm. <laughs> which is a really good realization to have. So um, just it about comes that a time, few times in the wine. <laughs> yeah, totally. So um, I, one of my old bosses from Mamafuku had become the director of operations for Laura Mannix Cork Buzz that was just okay. opening in, uh, in Union Square in New York. And so I just wanted to work for an MS. Uh, I just wanted to learn so much more. I knew that I, I needed mentorship. I needed a little bit more. I had gotten a really great job kind of right off the bat, but I really was looking for more guidance. So that is when I kind of really stepped it up. And, um, definitely at that point, I was like, this is my career. This is where I'm going. I am all in. Um, and when I worked for her, I took, that's when I took the certified and advanced, uh, under the court of masters. And so, um, yeah, since then it's, it's, a really enjoyed being committed to wine and full time. And, um, it's been, yeah, it's been over 10 years now working in wine. So very cool. And how did you make your way to Portland? Um, I had been living in New York for a long time. My husband was with, with my husband and he's a, a chef, but he was a line cook in New York city, which is, um, not a very easy life. No. So, and, <laughs> so he was really burned out. I was, kind of burned out, but, um, mostly we just wanted to kind of, we we wanted to buy a house. We were thinking about having a family. We kind of wanted to just not settle down per se, but just feel a little bit more, uh, holistic about our life and kind of have all of the things, uh, come together. So we decided on Portland partly for, it was a lot of reasons that came together. So one was just Portland. It was kind of peak Portland time of just like, this is in 2012, 2013. And it was like, that place is so cool. I want to live there. Um, the food scene is so amazing here. Uh, but I was also really drawn to the wines of the Willamette Valley. I cool. absolutely love living here near the Willamette Valley. I am so, it's just like, even before I moved, before I moved here, I was so drawn to it. And, um, I worked harvest in 2012, uh, for two different wineries, Belpont and Anime. So I came out here for almost a month and kind of split my time, uh, sort of like 10 days with one, 10 days with the other. Um, and then spent a little extra time in Portland after, and it was just, I was just completely enamored. And so in 2013, I worked IPNC, which is the international Mm -hmm. funeral celebration. Um, and while I was there as a maitre d', one of my fellow maitre d's was like, well, I kind of need someone to come work at like work for me as a manager. And I was like, I can be there in three weeks, <laughs> you know? So that really prompted the move. Okay. But, uh, since then it's just my, yeah, my husband followed me shortly after and, uh, you know, we've kind of, since then we sort of, you know, did our homesteading quite quickly. So we bought a house in 2014, we had a baby in 2016, uh, so when we bought a car, yeah, we bought a car like a few months after we moved here <laughs> and we were just, we were like, this is so cool. <laughs> we had another. And hey, you didn't even have to worry about pumping your own gas at first. I know so. it's, it's, it's so wonderful. I actually, uh, it's such a delightful luxury. Uh, it's kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and 
And so when did Park Avenue open and, and how long have you been there? Mm. So Sorry, Park Avenue opened, I know. It's okay. um, so Park Avenue opened in 2016. And um, yeah, 2016. So like August 2016. Okay. And I was not with Park Avenue when we opened. I was working at another really good restaurant that I absolutely love, but it was like a, uh, it was a bourbon and cocktail bar. So I was the GM and wine director there, but it just, it wasn't a wine place. So I was really kind of Which looking. Which place was that? The Wisman Tavern. Oh, okay. It's, the food was amazing. The vibe is so cool. The cocktails were just like out of this world, but sure. it just wasn't a wine place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was kind of looking to, I was just like, oh, I kind of need a change on this. And so, um, I had met the owners, my husband and I were doing a pop-up. And so we were looking for a place to do different events. And I met the owner who, cause we have this really amazing downstairs space. And so we did an event here and then I was just really in love with it. It's a really beautiful space. It's, I see it every day. I'm, I'm like almost like in a way you get sick of it, but it's really nice to look at it with fresh eyes. It's such a beautiful space. And I walked in and it's just such a, um, for why, I mean, it's just the place for why it's just sure. amazing. And so I was like, this is where I want to be. So I asked them, uh, I was like, are you looking for anyone in the wine bar? And they were like, oh yeah, we need a Monday night person. And oh. so I, it's like such a great, to me, it's just such it's amazing to look back on why I took this we- leap of faith. I have no idea, but I was like, sure. I'll work there one day a week. You know, I have like a one and a half year old. And I just said like, I want to work in wine still. So I started working there and within uh, here, and then within like two weeks, it was really fast. The wine bar manager quit to do something else. She's more of a cocktail person. Anyway, she, she didn't have extensive wine knowledge. You guys and just switched jobs. No, she, she left. Yeah. So, so they, but yeah, they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she, so uh, they were like, do you want to take over? Cause they were like, Oh God, now we don't have any new one to run this. And I was like, that's quite perfect for me actually. Yeah. So I started, uh, as a wine bar manager and I was there, I was doing that for, um, I don't even know, like I think a year and a year and a half. And then one of our partners, one of the founding partners left and we definitely, it is not a one person job by any means. It's a kind of a huge space, a lot of moving parts here. And so I, uh, clawed my way. I, we were in a manager meeting with our investors and I was like, Hey, I will be a partner. (laughs) And you know, at that point, you just have no idea what you're getting into. Um, but I'm glad I did it. Um, so then, uh, the beginning of, um, I, it's like years just go by. I don't even know. I think it was the beginning of 2019. Uh, I became a partner. And so, um, I think, yeah, two and a half years ago, I think. Um, and so, uh, that was a great kind of big step up. So I still was running the wine bar. Um, but then I was kind of doing all kinds of stuff, obviously, um, as an owner, you just, you kind of like, just do whatever. (laughs) There's no job. It's kind of like being a parent. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's been really great. And I've, well, you know, the last year and a half has been, uh, a challenge to my, uh, you know, emotions and and everything. Um, but we're starting to get to the other side of it. And we, I've been working six days with my partner for, um, about a year and a half now. Yeah. And we were just talking about it and we're like, I just, I just need like a 
I just need a time. It doesn't even need to be a large vacation. I don't want a large vacation. I just want a few times to have two days off in a row and yeah. just like catch up on gardening and just relax. Sleep, that kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about um, a few specific things in the world of wine, but before that, um, just kind of generally. So, you know, you came from, from mostly working in restaurants in New York City, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. New York, it, it, it would be impossible to say this is what wine culture in New York is like. It's so, you know, so big that there's, there's all kinds of things. But, mm-hmm. you know, moving from there to Portland, were there any kind of like shocks to the system in terms of either like what you, what you couldn't potentially sell in Portland or alternatively kind of like what people wanted that you were like, oh, really? Like, I don't even like... I don't know. What, what was it? What, mm-hmm. what was that change like? It was really big. I think for me, um, not having the opportunity to taste older vintages and more, you know, kind of higher. End, I just feel like there isn't as much, um, things just were kind of like flying around like they were in New York, you know, it just, there wasn't as many, um, I just kind of trying to think about, you know, especially like pork buzz where we taste the wines when we open them, which um, I, not a lot of Portland restaurants do. There are some, and, uh, they do it with, uh, mostly successfully, but definitely it's not Portland clientele aren't really ready for that. So it can be a little tricky, but, um, so I'm thinking about the wines at Cork Buzz that I would taste that were just like older vintages, the high, you know, the absolute benchmarks of the region. Uh, and in Portland, it just, it was a little different. Um, not a little different. It was a lot different. Um, I just, there isn't as many, you know, people just aren't opening like Marquis Burgundy or Bordeaux. Certainly Bordeaux is just not, Yeah. I, it's just not talked about as much. I don't feel. Um, and it's a little bit more about like, what's, what's cool and what's kind of like exciting and a lot more obscure. I think people in Portland like more obscure grapes and more things, you know, things that are kind of like, uh, you know, on the edge mm-hmm. um, instead of kind of the classics, which sure. is not, I mean, it's like, even as I say it, I'm like, it's not a bad thing. It's just so different. Yeah. Um, and that was a big change. And then for me as a wine professional, it's a big change to have not as many, not that they don't exist by any means, but not as many seminars that you're going to that are just, people are opening up older things or like these wines that you just don't taste every day and kind of learning about these different regions. There just isn't as much of that, both whether it's like a marketing body of that region, or if it's a distributor, it just doesn't happen as often. And so there's a lot less. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a much less, I mean, it's unfortunate in some sense, but a much less important market for most of them. And so, or at least that's how they view it. Um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, they're not going to, to direct resources there the way they would in New York or San Francisco mm-hmm. or LA or whatever. Um, Absolutely. do you find though that there is, I mean, my perspective on this is a little different or, or, or similar, but, but you know, whatever I, I find that for the, the things that you lose in some sense of not being in the absolute biggest cities, there is a real benefit to being very close to a a serious wine region that you have mm-hmm. while you may not get the DRC tastings or whatever, mm-hmm. you get the opportunity to, to not just visit vineyards, but to get to know the people who make the wine, to, mm-hmm. to interact with them, to, to, to have that be a part of your, you know, your, your kind of daily life in a way that I think in a place like New York, you know, while they might try and push 
you know, Long Island or even Finger Lakes wine, even Finger Lakes is far away. Mm -hmm. It's not the same thing. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to me, there's a pretty big positive, you know, in on the West coast in particular of, Mm -hmm. of yes, you may not have in, you know, Seattle or Portland, you may not quite have the same density of, of professionals that draws, you know, some of those, whether they're yeah, distributors or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, regional boards or whatever, but, but there is that proximity to, to the actual winemaking that is really valuable. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love that we just have so many personal relationships with so many winemakers and so many are self-distributed and they drop mm-hmm. off their own wine. And you ask them a question about a vineyard and the winemakers right in front of you, it's, it's so common. And we just, we have such strong relationships with so many winemakers and that is just amazing. And then I find that overall in this industry, because there's such access to so much information, I think people have a really strong appreciation for how much work goes into making wine and uh, the process of winemaking too, like understanding Mm -hmm. the ins and outs. It's not mysterious. Like we can, you know, we hear the winemaker talk about what they did and the vessels they used. And we have, I'm just saying, you know, we even have like, um, someone who makes, um, the Novums, like the Cavri ceramic, uh, here in the Willamette Valley. And so it's just, it's like, there's a lot of really, really cool things that are happening and you get to see it firsthand and it's, uh, yeah, yeah I mean, it's invaluable. So let's talk about some of those cool things. Cause one of the things that uh, we wanted to talk about is, I mean, I think when we talk about the Willamette and Oregon broadly, obviously the initial focal point for most people is Pinot Noir, understandably. Um, And not to say that there isn't incredible, exciting things going on in Pinot Noir in the Willamette and other parts of Oregon. But what are some other things that you are kind of excited about in in the Willamette or Oregon more broadly? And I will also take this moment to say that I'm drinking, I think, probably one of those things. Which is the uh, Le Petit nice. Frère from Division there, Gamay Noir. So it's actually a blend, I think, from um, fruit both from the Willamette and uh, from the Umpqua Valley. So mm-hmm. two different um, parts of Oregon that they're blending, um, and it's quite tasty. It's um, you know befitting those of you who aren't familiar with Division. They are it's a kind of Loire Valley inspired in their style. So while Gamay we tend to associate with Beaujolais. Um, and not to say that there's massive stylistic differences between the Loire Valley and um, Beaujolais, but to me, there is a little more of the kind of bright red fruit note on this wine that you associate, or that I associate more with Loire Valley Gamay, as opposed to a little bit darker, a little bit more kind of earthy in, uh, in Beaujolais. So anyhow, that was my little uh, transition there, but Stacy, are there, I love what, it. what, what in, uh, in Oregon kind of outside of Pinot, are you excited about? There is so much, I know, uh, one thing, um, I, well, this producer that I'm drinking, uh, so, um, this Gemsatz from uh, golden cluster, he has been making this like old vine semion from David okay. Hill winery. That is just stunning. It's so textural and so beautiful. Um, I keep meaning to like save some for my cellar and then I keep <laughs> forgetting because I think that it'll definitely be the kind of wine that in five, 10, 15 years, it's, it will be just like absolutely stunning. Um, and so it's, it's fun to see there's so many winemakers who are working with classic varieties, but then also any, they're just so up for discovery. And I think that's really cool. Um, you know, Jeff Beer of Golden Cluster, he works with mostly, uh, 
non-traditional variety. So he also, so he makes that semion, he makes a Sauvignon rose, which is like a, um, mm. yeah. And it, I don't want to butcher, I think it's a, but yeah, he, Sauvignon rose, like a mutation of Sauvignon and, um, and then, uh, God, he makes so many wines. It's amazing. He has a, he has a cool climate cab from the gorge, which is also really cool. Um, he makes like a, a blend of uh, Garenoir and um, Regent too. So he's also working with crossings. Yeah, it's like, but they're all so fun. And he's finding these old vineyards of these mm -hmm. grapes that are, you know, someone wants to tear out and he's making these really beautiful wines out of them. Uh, so it's really cool. Like there are these little pockets of vineyards that people in the Willamette Valley are, are finding and nurturing and, um, mostly, I mean, and then it's like, you hear the story. So I have a friend who makes a championship bottle, um, Saul Muchnick. He makes really inspired wines in the Willamette Valley, okay. which is also cool that there's room for all these people to make these really cool wines. So he has been making, it's called Silicon and Sapphires, and it's a blend of um, Friulano, uh, Ribola Jala, and Chardonnay from, I think, Ribbon Ridge, okay. I think. Definitely in the Willamette Valley. I'm pretty sure it's from a ridge. But uh, the, the Ribola Jala that he had been working with, it was really like only a few rows. Like it was not a lot of sure. wine. Uh, somebody bought it and uh, a large winery bought it and tore it up. And I think they planted Chardonnay. So his sure. last vintage uh, was just released. And so it's like, it's like really that, you know, the feeling of like, we still have to, it's so cool that there was Ribola Jala in the Willamette Valley. <laughs> And then, no. then like, you know, a, a large winery still looks at it and is like, yeah. this isn't going to make a lot of money. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to tear this up. So I think it is nice to see these people kind of championing, um, a little bit more obscure varieties. Um, but there's also, it's fun to see Syrah in the Willamette Valley, as well as Cabernet Franc. Um, one of my favorite producers, super small, but just amazing as twill sellers okay. and they actually have you heard of them at all i have not no so they have they're kind of a uh, cute little winery so so their winery is in west lynn which is like suburban portland okay. like really cute it's right near lake oswego okay and yeah. it, and so uh they, he it's like on this residential street and you just you're like, where are we? And then you pull up and it's half the street. is just like cute little houses with mailboxes. And the other half is this gorgeous vineyard and winery. And it's, it's so funny and it's really close to Portland too. So I also recommend that anyone wine tasting doesn't want to go too far, should hit yep. them up. But they have been working with Syrah for a long time and they use a couple different vineyards, definitely some in Southern Oregon, but then also there's a, one of the vineyards they use, um, I think it's the stormy morning vineyard. I'm not sure. Um, but it's in like extreme Northern Willamette Valley by the coast range. Okay. And so it's still technically Willamette Valley, but it's like much more Northwest of, uh, of like Yamhill. Um, it's this beautiful Syrah. It's savory, it's olivey, it's peppery, but it's still really like elegant and pretty. It's amazing. So he makes a, a few single vineyards, but then also a blend and his like Oregon Syrah because it's Willamette and South and um, Applegate um, or um, no, I think it's Applegate. Uh, it's just labeled as Oregon and it huh. is like $23.99 on the shelf and it is absolutely knock your socks up stunning. And so cool. it was fun to see cool climate 
Syrah in the Willamette Valley, which is not the most ideal place for Syrah. But to see these pockets of vineyards that are just making absolutely stunning wines is really mm -hmm. exciting. Um, and uh, there's so many. Oh, and then another one that we were, I was mentioning to you is um, for Cab Franc, uh, limited edition is okay. this winery that is um, Brie Stock, who's an MW. She's amazing. She's so wonderful. She's also the education director for, uh, I think the Oregon Wine Board, um, okay. either that or the Willamette Valley Winery Association, but I think it's the um, Oregon Wine Board. And uh, she's Australian, uh, but she's been living here for a while. And then her husband, Chad Stock is a winemaker. He used to be at Omero and Craft Wine Company. And then okay. um, now he's uh, working under this label limited edition. They are just making such cool wines and so they have this cab franc that we have in the shop that when um when we tasted uh ever since you know i'm i'm hopefully not the only one but marie kondo on netflix who's mm -hmm. just like absolutely amazing <laughs> i kind of started working the idea of sparking joy into my tasting notes mm. and so it was definitely this wine that we tasted and i was like this wine sparks joy so it, it's not a classic cabernet frog it is not a chinon style at all it okay. is is very bright. It's almost like Cab Franc in the in a, a Beaujolais style. It is just like yeah. bright and fresh, and it does have a little. I mean, you can tell it's Cab Franc, um, but it's it's a totally different iteration, which is kind of fun. I think that it's that you know it's it's not a car, a copy of another appellation. It's it's just what they're doing, and um, it's just so bright and so fresh and absolutely delicious. Uh, so it's, it's cool to see these classic varieties that uh, are just having kind of their own expression in the Willamette Valley too. Very cool. Uh, yeah. So I want to ask a question that's um, kind of connected to this, I think, or, or a topic that's connected to this. And you were, and I were sort of talking about this earlier, um, sort of before we were officially doing this. Um, and you mentioned before that your husband is a chef. So I'm always curious about this. Um, you know, food and wine pairing is a complicated subject and a complicated dance. And, um, and I think it, it's complicated both because there's a lot of pieces to it. And in, a, in the modern wine world, we have so many things available to us that, you know, your parent and, and food too, obviously there's a, a whole range of ingredients and techniques and cuisines that, you know, kind of very classic wine pairings have no, you know, never even knew about basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so first of all, and I would imagine that, you know, in both the wine bar when it was open and when it reopens and then in the shop, you get a lot of people asking you for pairing. So let's start with kind of first of like, do you like, how do you even approach a food and wine pairing? So it's a topic we could write books on. As it turns out. So one of the first things I think about is, uh, and it's because I do this and because, you know, my husband and I do it together all the time. I've really been trying to like hone my uh, pit, like my spiel on wine pairings. And it's really hard because it encompasses so much. But um, I think for me, uh, I kind of think about the body of the dish. Like you think about the body of the wine and then the body of the dish and they kind of have to match. And it's not always about flavor. So it's not saying like, oh, well, this has pepper in it. So I'm going to have pepper in my wine or, you know, this has this kind of fruit and I 
get this note in the wine. It's so much about the, yeah, I mean, the body and just like what the whole character of the dish is. Um, and if it's really rich or if it's, is it a bright dish? Is it, you know, I want to say citrusy, but that's a note, but it's not just that. Is it like, you know, is it kind of like a lightning kind of dish or is it something that's richer and fatter? Is it, I also kind of think in terms of like horizontal and vertical a lot. And so mm -hmm. like with wines too, like, is it something that's horizontal or vertical? Is it, you know, just textured and it, like mouth coating, or is it just like lean and just going to kind of like zip right past you? And so to kind of think of each, to think of the dish almost in the same way that we think of wine too. Sure. Um, and that is a good starting off point. And then um, it's also important always to consider, you know, it, to boil it down to just like the protein of a dish or whatever is, is not, it's always about the sauce. It's always about the thing. It's the whole dish together. Yeah, the cook, the cooking method, all that. Absolutely. Another yeah. thing I've been, the best way I can think about wine pairings too, that I have been trying to kind of push and I don't know the best way to say it. Um, but for me, I think about like, uh, people stress so much about wine pairings and it's so not stressful. It should be, it's like the most fun thing ever. But, uh, I think about like an outfit, you know, with, okay. with fashion is like, you know, you can have like, you can try an outfit on and you like it, but you're like, well, that's not how I feel today. So I'm going to swap out my pants or whatever, or my belt or my earrings or whatever. And it, you know, the dish still works. It just might take a different direction and I, or the outfit, sorry. And so that's kind of the same thing I think with food and wine pairings is that there isn't this like one answer. And so you can choose different wines with different dishes and it just kind of takes a different route and, but it still works. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, that's another thing is sort of to figure out like what you want to highlight in the dish and what like your personal things that you love are. So if you're like, I love, you know, I love the acid. I love the salt. I love the, you know, it's like kind of funny in wine. We always talk about, oh, well, sweet wines temper heat in, you know, Thai food or whatever. And it's such a classic pairing, but then I kind of always think like, well, what if you don't want to temper the heat? Like, what if you want to, you know, some people might not want to do that. <laughs> what, how, what's your personal preference of what you're trying to like, what you enjoy or what you want to, um, sip on or, you know, and it, it's just kind of, I think it's more like a choose your own adventure with wine pairings rather than there isn't the answer. It is not, no. you know, we're, this is not a multiple choice. It's, or it's not a multiple choice question. It's like, it's an essay, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like a, and so it's kind of fun to, um, to think about it like that. And then when you start pairing, it's more about like, which element on the dish are you looking to emphasize? Or are you, you know, we, my husband and I work a lot with wineries and we, it's so much fun and it's a good challenge for us too, because we're not trying to, his food is always going to shine because he's so talented, mm -hmm. <laughs> but like fangirling over my husband, chef over here, but, that's, but he's that's a good person. Yeah. But he's so talented, but when we're doing wineries events with wineries, they are looking to, you know, they're doing their release and yeah. they want people to buy wine. And so we don't want to make a dish that completely eclipses the wine. Sure. We, we don't want someone to say, Oh, I didn't even notice what the wine was, but your food was so great. We yeah. want them to be happy with the food, but you know, ultimately at that moment, our client is the winery and like, we want the wine to just like pop. And so it always depends on like with the dish, then you're like, what, how rich do you want to go or how much, like, what do you want to emphasize or, 
you know, like there's just, yeah, there's so many different roads that you can go down. And once you know which one you're kind of in the mood to go down, then you can kind of decide like, are we going for, you know, a really acidic dish, a really rich dish? Um, is it, can you, do you want to smoke? Do you want to grill? Do you want to, you know, is, and then you can kind of follow rules with wine pairing, which something, you know, I was taught when I was learning is like, if, if it's the kind of dish that you want to put citrus on, like if you want to squeeze lemon or lime on it, then you're going to want to wine with a lot more acid. If it's something you can imagine butter on, then you're, you want something that is oaked or rich and really textured. And then using those kind of basic rules, you can sort of think about where you're going to go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of those things <laughs> simply is how it's <laughs> just a break. <laughs> so complicated, but yeah. it's kind of where I start is, um, but yeah, I definitely start with kind of a juju on the, on the dish. Like what's the, what's the vibe of the wine? What's the vibe of the dish and how can they come together? Very cool. And I think too, one thing that, that you, I think kind of alluded at, but that I would add is that I think with pairing, you have a few different options. And one of them is the thing that I think is a trap for a lot of people, which is trying to match flavor to flavor. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I've found that many of my favorite pairings, either that I've enjoyed as just a uh, either a drinker or as a, uh, you know, the person doing the pairing are ones where you obviously have to pay attention to the flavors of the dish, but mm-hmm. you're almost working to complement or accentuate them as opposed to match them. And, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, for one, there's a lot of foods that have flavors. Like if you think about a lot of classic pairings that make sense, I mean, you can find a pretty meaty red wine, but you're not going to find the you know, Cabernet does not typically taste like steak. I mean, it tastes like things that we like to have with steak, which is the whole mm-hmm. point, right? You know, I, I was very struck early in my wine or just in my food, like restaurant career with a sort of Italian notion of wine as a condiment mm-hmm. and that idea that it's something that's there to add flavors to the dish, to draw out flavors that might be in the dish, to add, you know, yeah, to add acid, to add tannin, mm-hmm. to add whatever. Um, and not that, food and the wine in a glass should taste the same. I mean, that's kind of cool if you occasionally manage it, but it's also kind of like, well, well, I don't want the exact, you know, I don't want, just like, I don't want a dish that's all one note. I don't Mm -hmm. want a pairing that's all one note. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to ask too, in this vein a little bit, um, how do you gauge kind of, um, I mean, it's kind of connected to pairing. I think it's kind of connected to selling wine just in general. Um, how do you kind of gauge recommendations to people where you may be pushing them outside of their comfort zone or at least the area of familiarity? Because I think, you know, I was just talking to someone about this the other day and I was saying that I think one of the hardest things to do as a sommelier or, or person in a retail shop or whatever is to know when someone tells you what they like, whether your best you know, kind of the best thing to do is to just sort of go like, oh, great. I, you like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, here are the ones I have, or here are the ones mm-hmm. that are in your price point versus being like, potentially, um, here are some that are, here are some wines that might be, might appeal to you, but are going to take you outside of that category that you already explained to me you like. So, so mm-hmm. how do you, I mean, I know it's a person, it's a, each time is different, but in general, mm-hmm. how do you kind of approach that challenge? Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, that is like a, it's 
a good question. I mean, I think there's the kind of the difference between is it a regular that you're working with or is it someone who's just kind of like in off the street and uh, you've never talked to them before and you don't know what their wine preferences are. Um, so what's fun about it is interesting, too, because I've been working in retail for I've worked in retail before in New York a little bit, but uh, mostly I've been working in retail for the last year, which is not my background. So it's kind of interesting to try and such a challenge to try and interpret every you know everyone's palette within five minutes of meeting them or probably less um but I think so much of it is just like in hospitality I think you I'm actually I kind of have my like um sort of like east coast aggressive aggressive questioning too so I am like not afraid to be like well, what do you, where, where are you at here? Like how much, you know, what's your price point? Do you, are you like, what's the vibe on this? You're looking for a gift. Are you trying to impress? Are you trying to just like, you know, what do they like? I'm, I'm pretty, <laughs> I, I think I'm, I try and be charming while I do it, but I'm pretty aggressive with my question asking. And I think once you, especially if you really, um, again, with my hospitality background, if you really take, like, if you look at people's body language and hesitations and how they kind of look at you, like, <laughs> like, are you crazy? Or like, I'm into this. You can kind of get pretty far with like, how far can I push this person? You know? And so, and sometimes like, so that's where someone kind of first met, but I, I love repeat customers who can say, I tried this Pinot Gris. What would you try next? And, and kind of how to push them from there. Um, and you sort of understand what their limits are. And that's, uh, that's pretty fun too. Um, we have so many repeat customers here at the shop. Actually, that's not true because then also we're in a tourist area. So we get a lot of tourists too, but yeah, I think that like body language and asking questions that require people to answer, even if they're uncomfortable, then you get, then you're like, Oh, okay. I hear you. I know why you're feeling weird and I yeah. get you. And I know where I have to back off a little. Like I know, gotcha. like, okay, we're going to stay in shard Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir situation. Or if they're like, I don't know, I, I could do something, you know, you're like, okay, oh, they opened the door and I'm going to walk through it. Sure. Um, because it's, it's true. Like people, uh, people have their comfort zones with wine and um, sometimes they're afraid to, I also like to ask a lot of questions because if they're, people are so scared to talk about wine. And so if you open it up where you're like, oh, do you like Pinot Noir? Because it's like, a thin skinned, you know, red fruited, light bodied wine. They'll be like, I do. Yes. But I'm like willing to try something else. So you're like, all right, here, I got this like beautiful gamay from Ribbon Ridge or, um, you know, I think what else we have in the show, but yeah, you would just like, great. And just like aggressively walk through that door <laughs> and sure. let, you know, and kind of like open them up to it. I mean, I'm also lucky that our, our wine shop is definitely, um, people either wander into it uh, or they come to us specifically. And either way, like you can tell that this is like, what we have here is not like you're, you're in like a place of expertise. And I think once people realize that they're like, okay, like you have good stuff on your shelf, obviously. And you're not like, you know, we're not, we don't really have much crossover with grocery stores. And it's like, they kind of can tell that when they walk in and see our chandelier and, you know, <laughs> so speaking of fancy things, um, you want to talk about champagne and you, you, you guys have a champagne club. I want to hear about this. So, uh, well, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, I started uh, monthly wine clubs just because obviously that's the thing to do. Um, but it's also great because it was a really wonderful way to get wine to people 
in a really organized way that they was easy for them. Um, and it also includes monthly delivery. So that was also a way to be like, Hey, I will, you know, slightly in a desperation way of like, I will get you wine. Do you want wine? (laughs) I will find a way to get it to you in my car, in my uh, little Mazda hatchback. So, (laughs) yeah. So, but champagne is one, I mean, I, I love champagne. It's not hard to describe why. And it was a good way to get, I kind of wanted to hit all price points. So we have a value pack. Uh, and then champagne, I was like, I mean, that's, that's fun. That's something, um, I definitely want to do. So it's a two pack for 125 bucks. So it's for, you know, it's not cheap, but it's not, you know, for champagne, it's definitely kind of on an average, um, you know, it's like 65, you know, about 60, 65 a bottle. And, uh, I've had a lot of fun with it because, I mean, not just because I get to drink a lot of champagne, Um, but I've been trying to do themes each month. And for me, it's such a great little deep dive into different aspects of champagne. So sometimes my themes are very simple and sometimes they're a little bit more elaborate. So I've done, you know, the first month I was just like, here's two Blanc Blancs, like so classic and beautiful and amazing. And then um, another month I did like, here's two Blanc de Noirs. But in February, I think it was, I did uh, two wines that were from the 2012 vintage and it was kind of great to be like this is a great vintage that people are excited about try these and you know just kind of explore see if you like them they have a little bit of age on them so you kind of get a little bit you know richness um and that that was really fun um in january i did uh pinot meunier as a theme and so it was uh i did the jose michel uh, Mounier and then, uh, Egliorier's, uh, Rigny, which was like, mm-hmm. so cool. And just like, I was so jazzed about it. I was actually waiting forever to do that too. Like they were out of stock on it for like Ugh. months. And I was just like waiting till it got <laughs> back in stock. And I just like, couldn't wait for it. Um, and then, uh, last month I did, or two months ago, I did, uh, perpetual cuvées. So okay. Mousset oh, wow. has one. Um, I think that's all of Meunier. And then um, there was, uh, oh, <laughs> it's funny though. And there was another one I wanted that wasn't in stock, but uh, Dumont has a really awesome one. Um, but I think the Solera goes back. I think it's like 91, I think. Okay. Um, cool. But uh, so I ended up doing um the Cuvée de Reserve from uh, Gaston Chiquet. Okay. I'm like, oh, cool. I don't want to, I don't want to misspeak here. It was either, um, I think it was Gaston Chiquet. Yeah. Um, and so that was fun. Cause it was, it's not like a, it's not like an intensely, I think it's just a few vintages. It, it's not like a actual like perpetual Cuvée for, you know, a long time, but um, it's kind of like tiptoes into it. So it's sort of fun to like show this like, you know, edge into it. So that was really fun. And then last month I did, um, a Blanc, I did, uh, a Blanc de Blanc and a Blanc de Noir, uh, because I thought it was just fun to like, I also want to be a fr- you know, friendly with it. So sure. I don't want to always be so esoteric that people aren't like into it. Yeah. Um, and I kind of want to give the people what they want to. And I kind of always envision like, if they're kind of hanging on to champagne, I want by the end of the year for them to be like, wow, I know a lot about champagne. I've had these, you know, I've had these styles. So to not be so esoteric that they're like, oh, I've really only had like one Blanc de Blanc ever. And you're like, oh, sure. well, that's, 
then I would fail you as your champagne teacher. Yeah, <laughs> so, <exactly. laughs> but actually, so in June, um, I had a lot of fun with it because I tasted this producer that I hadn't ever heard of before, D'Souza. And maybe it's just because mm-hmm. it's just not in my market. But um, and so I tried it and it was really wonderful and lush and rich. And it was six grams of dosage and just I just gravitate so greatly towards Brut Nature and just really extra Brut, really dry champagnes personally. And it was just a really balanced, really beautiful wine. And so, I mean, six grams isn't even that much, but it's still, it, you know, it's just so much more lush than the wines that I've normally tasted. So I thought that would be fun for this past month to do a little bit uh, higher dosage level. So then I chose Kamisav makes the... Um, Cardor that is eight grams and it's all Grand Cru fruit. And that was just, and also just very lush, very, but still tons of acidity. Uh, it was like still really tart and it's kind of great to have like a nice, uh, grower champagne to throw in there. Well, they're both are. Um, and it was really fun for me too, because I love doing research and all that stuff. And so I kind of went on a little bit of a deep dive on the history of champagne too. And, um, I, you know, one of the fun things, uh, is the, um, champagne Pomery came out with the first brute in 1874 Mm -hmm. and it was 30 grams. And so it's also fun to put it in perspective of, you know, I'm like sitting here, like, hoping that my customers will be okay with eight grams of sugar in this really highly acidic, you know, but and then it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is not sweet that's, by any means. It's so Yeah. Bad. That's interesting to me. Do you, do you feel like, um, if you, if, if people have any qualms about RS and champagne or other sparkling wine, is it about just the number itself or the perception? Cause I feel like with sparkling wine often, I mean, I, I think six grams is like still, I think technically extra brute. And, um, and even eight, you know, depending on the wine is not very perceptible. I don't Mm. think, um, I've always found that, you know, with people, you know, they, whatever they might think, like, um, you know, the, uh, even up to 12 in a lot of cases, your, your people are, their perception of the wine is not going to be, oh, this is an off dry sparkling Mm. wine. Um, is that check out with you? Or do you feel like people do really kind of get sensitive when it gets up into that? you know, I don't know, high single digits or whatever. I think it depends on the customer. I can think of like, I, I don't know. I think maybe it's my, I think it's me putting <laughs> my perception onto the customer um, in a lot of ways. But I agree with you though, that is, you know, I was actually joking with one of my, uh, one of the club members today, kind of doing my whole spiel and talking about how excited I was to deep dive into all these dosage levels. And even, and he's one of the more educated, I mean, he's, he's a consumer, but he's very highly educated on wine. And he was like, yeah, and like eight grams isn't even that much. And I was like, okay, thank you. Because like you were in my head of the type of person that drinks a lot of Natur. And he was just like, yeah, it's not that much. So it's kind of a good, I, I don't think that, I think it's perception. I think it's my own sure. perception. Um, but then I also think that, um, you know, yeah, up to 12 grams is still, it's still going to drink dry. It's still such a classic. So many classic brutes are still in that range um, that it just, I think that we're definitely getting used to, I guess I use the, even as I say it, I'm like, when I say we, who am I actually yeah. talking about? <laughs> but um, I, I think maybe wine professionals are just, I think we're getting used to that just tart, right? You know, just brutinator, just so bone dry. Um, 
but still, uh, yeah, I mean, six to eight grams is like, yeah. I think most people would try it and be like, yeah, this is. Yeah. It's funny. Okay. Cause I'm like one of the, <laughs> one of the few I know who really, I'm not a big fan of most Brut Natures. I mm-hmm. find, I find to me, you know, the, the whole selling point of, of champagne in particular in a lot of sparkling wine regions is the incredible high acidity. But to me, I, I also don't like super high acid still wines either. Like I don't, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things that are, you know, whatever wine pro some hits that I just, sometimes I can appreciate them in their own way, but, but they're certainly hard wines to drink on their own. And even with food and wine pairings, I just find that cr- super intense acidity that's not moderated with something is just a little like, I don't know. I, I, it's not, to me, it's not that, it's not that appealing. And, and frankly, um, some of that might be just personal preference. Some of it is also like, you know, um, why, what is it about this that we are valorizing and why? And is it mm-hmm. just that like, sometimes I think it becomes about like, you know, proving that you can enjoy a thing that is not on the face of it delicious is a way mm-hmm. of like proving your cred. Um, and it's not unique to wine or even those kinds of wines. I think a lot about, you know, I also don't like crazy high IBU beers. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not interested in proving that I can enjoy a triple IPA just so that, you know, cause it's like on the border of, you know, consumable. Um, <laughs> and I frankly like hazy IPAs cause they just taste better. And, mm-hmm. and to me, wine, I love hazies. Yeah. Yeah. And wine has its, there's merits to wines that aren't purely about simple pleasure. Like you think it's great to have wines that are complex and interesting and even sometimes challenging, but I also try to recognize in myself and in others that like, you know, just like everything else in life, I don't, there's merit to being challenged at times, but there's also, that's not the only reason people do things or enjoy mm-hmm. wine. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I had to learn at some point in my career that like, <laughs> a lot of my tables don't want to be challenged, right? They say they're like, <laughs> they say they they're like, things going on in their lives. Yeah. They just, yeah, we don't, and like, totally. you know, it's good to be prepared for the tables that do want to try something challenging, but a lot of the times it's just, People want something that's going to taste good. That tastes, you know, in many cases familiar. It's like, you know, there, there are lots of parallels to that in all in food and other things. So um, I have just a couple of other quick kind of questions, Stacey, or things I'm curious about. So I know we spoke a little bit before we kind of started officially, but um, you, know, you don't have to be too on the record, but it does sound like the wine bar will be reopening, which is um, mm-hmm. exciting for people who might be in Portland or visiting Portland in the near future. What, I, I know you mentioned before that kind of you're getting to start fresh, uh, mm-hmm. kind of with this, do you think that's just going to be, Hey, here are some, um, new wines or sort of conceptually are, are things going to change at all? Um, conceptually, I don't think they are, although I'm kicking around a lot of ideas in my head. I know, uh, so I had always had, we've always done corkage, uh, with mm-hmm. our shop. And so you can grab okay. anything from the shop and drink it in the bar. So I had never really had a wine bottle list which I think I am now excited to create. Um, I think it'll just be, I think we always thought like, Hey, you can just grab something off the shelf. But I also think that that's a little intimidating and people kind of want to just flip through and stay at their table and not, you know, just enjoy themselves. And so that's something I'm excited about because I think for me as a buyer, I had always had this um, price point uh, Island or, the opposite, a gap in a way. So I would always taste, you know, things that were under 25 wholesale and, 
then for my core of pours, like over 50 wholesale. And there's so many things in between there that I sure. absolutely love. And I was just kind of like, okay, well that doesn't fit on the list. So I, I mean, I would taste it because I also work in the shop as well. So, and I can sell in the shop. So I still want to know what all the price points, but for the, the bar, I just was kind of like a blind spot for me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited to actually have a bottle list that really encompasses everything that I'm excited about. It doesn't, there's no price doesn't matter. Um, because also, you know, we, with our corkage, um, it's so funny cause we're, we're, we're a little fancy. If you walk in here, it's definitely like, it looks, uh, again, we have this like chandelier in a wine shop. It's like amazing, <laughs> but really our prices are just, kind of staggeringly low in that we've always, we used to have a $10 corkage, but it, it, it definitely is not sustainable. So we're increasing our corkage to 15. But when you think about the difference between something that, um, you know, like if I'm trying to kind of like, I want to use like a scenario of, of price points, but it, basically if we have a $15 corkage, it sounds like a lot for corkage, but it's really on top of retail. And so compared to restaurant pricing it yep. is like a steal. It is like yep. absolutely a steal. So, um, and then my, you know, my glass pours are pretty standard priced, um, with kind of the market, but, um, one thing I've been kicking around, uh, and I think I'm going to pull the trigger on, but is the idea of like doing like Cortinos. So kind of five ounce glasses okay. and then like eight ounce Cortinos. And it's just to kind of also encourage people to sort of share and like try more things where they don't have to kind of commit to a bottle or just a glass. And, mm-hmm. um, I think people, I think it's just a really friendly way for people to kind of try different things. Sure. Um, and so that I'm excited about that too. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so conceptually, I think it's going to stay relatively similar, but I'm excited to really, we, I've always done flights uh, because people love flights and then it's a mm-hmm. way for me to like kind of throw something in there that people are, haven't experienced before. Sure. And then you're like, try it in a flight. And people are like, that sounds great. Yeah. And so, um, I'm really excited to, to bring, to bring it in with food, which we've never done before. And so I'm really hoping to be like, here's a flight. And then, you know, like an add on of like a three bite thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm like, don't hold me to this, but it's the kind (laughs) of things that I'm excited about. And that like, I really, what I really envision for the wine bar is just like something like creating that experience of like, Oh wow, that all tied in together. And not only did I get to try these three Spanish wines, but I also tried these three bites that really made the wines better. And now I have, you know, and then people also like want to get ideas too. I think it's less intimidating if they really try these really cool pairings. And then when they get home, they're like, oh yeah, I did have that, you know, pairing is such like you build on it. And so they're like, oh, I could, I could try that. I could do that. Um, and so it would be really fun to really tie that in, um, and kind of also bring in different regions We're we're also really excited. We've always been trying to push the idea of, (laughs) tinned fish on people which like Mm. I think wine geeks and like food geeks like absolutely love and we're still trying to like get the general public to like (laughs) absolutely love them too I think they're they're starting to um in mass I know that there's a niche for this um and I'm in that niche but um in mass they're still quite not there but we really want to make people comfortable with it and I think it's such a good thing in the wine bar and it's tinned fish can be so good with wine and we're trying to figure out how we can make it more approachable. Like one idea we had was, you know, tin fish, like because they come in, um, because they come in, uh, my family is um, waving goodbye to me. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, my, actually my 
five-year-old is here too. So, oh, um, yeah, she's, yeah, she, she actually thinks it's so much fun to come into the wine shop. She calls oh, it my fun. workshop. And then ah. she's like, yeah, it's so cute. Um, but one thing we've been talking about, you know, tin fish comes in little tins and I mm-hmm. think people who aren't comfortable with it are afraid to commit to an entire tin of something that they're like, I just want to try it. So we're kind of hope, hoping it works out, but you know, the idea that maybe we, can find things that aren't in tins or we just break apart the tin. And when you buy like a cheese and charcuterie board, we can like put some sardines on it. And so if you've never had them before, it's just something that you can kind of experience on the side without being like, Oh, I'm going to pay $15 for a tin. Mm-hmm. And then, so if you, cause sometimes people try them and if they don't like them, then they're like, I just committed to this whole thing. And so to make it a little, a uh, little less commitment to it where they can kind of experience it um, and then add wine on top of that and be like, this is what we've all been talking about. Then hopefully they can be a little bit more comfortable with these like really awesome products. I, I wish you the best of luck. I am like, uh, <laughs> I am a tin fish skeptic. I mean, I really enjoy it personally, but my, my experience is that it's like so hard on two levels. One, like Americans don't like fishy things. Like mm-hmm. it is just an ironclad rule. You look at all the top selling fish in the country and it's salmon, halibut, cod, you know, not fishy things. Now, again, I love those. I love oily fish. Some of my favorites, but it's, it's a hard sell. Mm-hmm. And the other problem is like, and maybe it's a little less of a problem in Portland than here, but the other problem is, you know, you, I'm sure you will, you might give me a counter example, but it's very hard to pair red wine with them. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's what people drink. I mean, people, yeah. there are definitely white wine lovers for sure. Um, I'm one of them, but you know, you're kind of asking people, a lot of people to go outside of their comfort zone in multiple dimensions to go take on a sort of oily, briny, fishy thing. And also like a category of wine that maybe they don't super into or don't know much about. That's not to say it can't work. And I think the thing that's nice about tin fish and the other reason why it's been successful in some wine bars is like, you know, it's pretty, I mean, again, they're tin fish, they last a long time. So mm-hmm. you don't have to sell a lot of them to be able to keep them on the menu in a way that something that has a much, you know, a much shorter shelf life, you do have to kind of move through. Um, but I will say that like, I, I think for a whole host of reasons, it's great to kind of put it out there. Mm-hmm. I just have always found that like, even when I go out with people who are pretty, you know, and not like, you know, the most adventurous eaters I know, because they'll be into it. But a lot of people are just kind of, you know, I'll go get the charcuterie instead or something, right? People, something that people are familiar with more, works with the wine that they often want to drink, which is red wine. And, uh, and just has a, you know, people grow up eating, you know, cured meat in this country. They just, they don't grow up eating cured fish very, mm-hmm. not many people. I agree with that. No, I know. And I will not, it is not a sword that I will die on. I will, uh, if people aren't into it, I will, uh, I will give up the fight and just eat it at home. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Very cool. Well, Stacey, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I look forward to getting back down to Portland uh, sometime in the next few months, hopefully, and coming and saying hi. And I hope I have the wine bar here for you. I would say I'll I'll, I'll eat some tin fish, even if no one else, (laughs) even if no one else will. Um, But yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it and look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Zach. This has been really fun.